Do we have to use all of baseball's new stats and metrics? We'll talk about that and more with Lore Michaels, the fantasy baseball zen master from mastersball.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 19th. It's show number 40 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Lore Michaels about baseball's new stats and metrics, about young players who came in at the trade deadline, the A's rotation, the Giants' playoff hopes, and even a little golf. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at the Atlanta bullpen and injuries to Giancarlo Stanton and Matt Holliday. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at the rotations in Boston and New York, Gary Sanchez, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business for 20 years. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Dodgers pitching prospect Jose De Leon. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Texas outfield and two returnees from the DL for the Mets. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Jose De Leon as well and Oakland shortstop Chad Pinder. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including a Sunday American League game with Minnesota right-hander Irvin Santana in Kansas City to face the surprising lefty Danny Duffy. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the beginning of the end for saves as a fantasy stat. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? BaseballHQ.com is celebrating its 20th anniversary. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Bad news in St. Louis to start with. Uh, another parade of injuries as our news segment has sadly become low these many weeks. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals outfielder Matt Holliday sent to the 15-day DL. I think it'll be longer than that. He's broken his right thumb. Phil Hertz covered this in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, what's the story with Matt Holliday and who gets the playing time that he loses? At this point, of course, with that kind of an injury, you don't know how long he's going to be out, but he certainly will be out a while. It's going to be more than, as you said, more than the 15-day uh, day situation. Uh, uh, in fact, we're projecting a playing time loss of 40% for Matt Holiday, so a, a rather large playing time loss for Holiday over the remainder of the season. And so St. Louis at this point, the, the guy that's going to get most of the playing time probably in, in his place is Randall Grichuk, and he, he has really taken advantage over the last uh, – the last week, uh, six hits and 20 at-bats, one home run, six RBIs. Uh, the guy's always had excellent power. The problem has been has been strikeouts and contact rate, and we're seeing, I think, exactly what we've normally seen with him. 60% contact rate over the last week, but uh, outstanding power, uh, and, and so if you need some home runs, there may be a, a chance of getting some uh, out of him over the next, uh, the next few weeks. 
When I looked at his historical stats, Nick, uh, I saw that the contact rate was over 70% a couple of years ago. He had a a limited amount of at-bats. He was around 72%. Last year, he uh, tripled his at-bats, and his contact rate plummeted to 66%. Man, when you're striking out a third of the time, that's pretty bad. He's recovered a bit this year to 70%, but isn't that still too much to provide anything except power? And even the power comes at the expense of uh, probably a pretty low batting average. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, right now his batting average is is, uh, uh, is, is a 225 for the year, and uh, it's simply going to get lower given that kind of uh, that kind of swing and miss tendency. So, uh, yes, very definitely. He's a he's a he's going to give you good power, and whether you can tolerate the batting average is the real question. Line drive percent this year of just fourteen percent, which also mitigates against his batting average. Uh, there are some other candidates for playing time. Who do we like among? Uh, I see Jeremy Hazelbaker's got a playing time gain of five percent at Baseball HQ. Tommy Pham a five percent. Colton Wong ten percent. Is this all mixing and matching with infielders and outfielders? And uh, do we like any of these guys? Yeah, I think it really is a lot of mixing and matching, and and who's who's hot and who's in the lineup and uh, lefty righty kinds of things, and so. You know, I don't think any of these guys are going to get enough at bats, perhaps, to do a whole lot. Colton Wong probably is worth watching. Uh, Colton Wong can can give some some decent production, um, but uh, at this point, it looks like uh, like uh, Grachuk is the main playing time gainer here. More bad news this time in the National League East. The Miami Marlins placed slugger uh, Giancarlo Stanton with a strained left groin. He goes to the 15-day DL. And uh, Phil Hertz reports at BaseballHQ.com that uh, Stanton had an MRI. The injury is more serious than 15 days. Sounds like it's enough probably the rest of the year. Big blow for the Marlins. And again, we have to say who gains the playing time. Yeah, The way, the way that, we, that we spread it out as we looked at it was 20% for Robert Andino, 15% for Ichiro Suzuki, uh, 10% for Derek Dietrich. Uh, it hasn't always, it hasn't really played out that way so far over the past week. Uh, and so it's one of those things you've got to kind of really keep your eye on to see what's really happening. Uh, over the past week, Ichiro Suzuki has actually gotten most of the playing time. Uh, 19 at bats, five hits, 263 batting average. Uh, and Ichiro has been hitting fairly well this year, 313 batting average overall, uh, although only 220 over the last month. So, uh, that's the guy maybe to keep an eye on because he could give you some stolen bases along the way. Um, at this point, uh, Robert Andino has not, has not, uh, done much or gotten in the lineup very much. Uh, five, only five at bats over the last week. So they don't seem to be giving him a lot of playing time yet. Uh, and Derek Dietrich has, uh, had, I think, a, a bit more, but has actually struggled recently. Uh, uh, Ten at-bats over the past week, but only two hits. I have to say, Nick, I was really surprised to see Andino was the guy called up to take Giancarlo Stanton's roster spot. Uh, he's the very definition of a fringe major leaguer. He hasn't even been in the big leagues for the last couple of years. Uh, what does Robert Andino bring to the table that even justifies giving him a roster spot? Well, you know, that's one of those things that one of the, you're, you're right. It's a good question to ask. And, um, and, and it almost looks like they're, they're looking at him that way in terms of what they, because they haven't played him much. He's only, as I said, only five at bats and we're only projecting 32 at bats over the rest of the season and a 153 batting average. So it's a very empty kind of, uh, kind of stat line. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I wonder about why bring him up at all. He had one, uh, positive value season, I think, in his entire career fantasy wise starting in 2005 that was in 2011 he had a bit more than 450 at bats uh, stole 13 bases i think that's where his eight dollars of value came from because the rest of it was pretty uh pretty low 263 batting average i guess is average but five homers 36 for rbis 60 runs yeah 
Yeah, right. Yeah, there's no, there's no power there. There's a little bit of speed, but it's only a, a little bit of that. And uh, lately, when he's been, uh, when he's been up, they haven't been letting him run. So, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know why. I don't know what he brings to the table at all. But he certainly would bring nothing to your fantasy roster. And you mentioned Ichiro Suzuki. Uh, maybe some bags, a little bit of batting average if you get lucky. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, well, I mean, you know, there's there's a bit of age on Ichiro at this point, at age 42. Um, but he has been hitting decently in terms of average so far this season. So uh, if I were going to re- pick up somebody out of that mess, it would be Ichiro. But I think the uh, – and Derek Dietrich certainly is a young guy with some promise, but at this point is struggling to hit. I like Ichiro a little bit uh, because uh, he seems to be hanging in there and the skills he always had – seem to be the kind of skills that are sustainable. He came into the league back in 2002, so he's had a good long run, and it's very rare to see him with a contact rate below 90% or the high 80s. I think one time he had an 81% a few years ago. He's back up to 87%, walking 10% of the time. He's got an expected batting average of about 284. He's slightly above that for reals, and uh, I think of the batch, Ichiro Suzuki might be the best choice. Yeah, I think he very well might be, and the speed is still there. I mean, we're... Uh, you know, the speed is at 142 speed index, which is is really excellent. And at this point, it's stolen nine bags, hitting a lot of balls on the ground uh, to take advantage of that speed. So, yeah, I think I agree with you. If, if I were going to pick up someone out of this situation, it would be Ichiro. And, of course, he's a terrific fielder, still throws the ball like a cannon. I think uh, Miami may find themselves giving Ichiro a start towards 4,000 hits. Who knows? They <laughs> <laughs> may indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Staying in Miami, uh, Martin Prado, uh, the third baseman down there and a kind of a utility guy as well, has outward stats in 2015 weren't that different from previous years, but we saw some troubling signs beneath the surface. This year, he's got a 321 batting average. He's hit seven home runs, which is nice. Greg Pyron in Facts and Flukes was looking at Martin Prado and asking, has he erased the concerns that we had for him in the preseason? What's the result? Well, you know, you know, you, you look at you look at that batting average and think, you know, this guy could be could be contending for a for a batting title. But I, 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 we were uh, lukewarm on him to say the the least at the start of the season, but. When you look behind that behind that batting average, uh, there, there certainly is reason to be cautious here. Uh, certainly, there's a BA floor with Prado that has always been there. He, he does have some solid plate skills, and uh, he's a guy whose batting average is not going to crash on you. In fact, that 267 or that 282 has been the low over the last uh, the last five years. A 267 expected batting average. So, a guy that's got some decent plate skills, but. Uh, still some problems. His power has, has been fading. Uh, we are looking right now at a uh, power index of, of 71. Uh, but power index has been on the way down. An expected power index of 62. So there really isn't a lot a lot there. Um, some improvement against uh, right-handed pitching so far, but uh, power against right-handed pitching remains well below average. Uh, but he's hit very well against left-handed pitchers. And this is a guy who looks like he really should be a platoon player at this point that's getting full-time at-bats. Back in 2012, Nick Martin Prado had 17 stolen bases, part of his uh, best fantasy season ever, a $23 campaign, uh, thanks to some uh, timely hitting 10 home runs, those 17 bags I mentioned. But he's only got one bag each of the last two years. Is it time to just believe that despite a 122 speed score, this guy is just done stealing bases? Well, I th- you know, I, I think it may be. I mean, he just doesn't ever attempt anything, and that's the uh, that's the issue. Um since that since that campaign when he stole 17 bases, he has a grand total of eight. 
in 15 attempts. So there's simply, he, he's not getting much chance to run or he doesn't want to run, uh, but certainly is not uh, going to be a great stolen base source. Yeah, the uh, the idea that he had that 17 stolen bases looks more and more like an outlier when we get uh, a little closer into it. Uh, finally, Nick, in Atlanta, Arotis Vizcaino, the closer, was on the DL. He's been uh, activated, and Doug Dennis says Jim Johnson remains the closer for now, but not for long. Well, you're right, and in fact he does. And, and in fact, I think I think they actually made an announcement to that yesterday that Vizcaino would be eased back into closing duties. And and uh, as I, as you said, Doug sort of predicted this when he uh, on Wednesday before the activation. And uh, certainly Vizcaino may may wind up. Uh, back in the closer role, but Jim Johnson has really done a, a, an excellent job. A, a BPV of 98, which is certainly closer worthy, a 56% ground ball rate. Um, and so, you know, if I were if I were an owner and had Johnson on my roster, I sure wouldn't dump him yet. I'd wait and see what happens in this uh, uh, in this context. Nick, Jim Johnson's one of the weirdest players I can remember in my entire time playing fantasy baseball. An unhittable closer for two years. Then the absolute floor just fell out from under his feet and he's basically stank out the joint for the last few years. And now here he is again. He's, he's pitching not great, but certainly a lot better than he has. What do you make of Jim Johnson's career? <laughs> You're right. It's one of those, it's one of those very strange things that you can't figure out at all. I mean, as you said, it, he, he was pitching well and then you go back to, uh, you know, you back to go back to 2014 when he has 7.09 earned run average and, you know, so. It's, uh, it didn't do much better last season, but now this season, given the chance to close again, he's back to doing a very decent job in converting saves. So, and putting up the highest dom rate of his career at this point. So, you know, I, I don't know what to make of Jim Johnson, but if I were a manager, I'd sure write him. I remember I had him once uh, back in 2012. He was a $20 player for me. And, and for the next couple of years, uh, well, the next year he was down around 15. And then, like I said, kaboom, I drafted him again in 2014 for Tout Wars. Minus 14, his ERA shot up, you said, to 709. His whip was almost a two. It was, it was astonishing is the only way I can describe it. And that, on the one hand, makes him look like an opportunity, and on the other hand, makes him look like a real big risk. So I guess a lot depends on what you need at this stage in the season for your fantasy team. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, there's certainly the risk is there. He's shown that he can. Uh, he's shown that he's got a. Uh, uh, he, he can absolutely kill you if he goes bad, and he's gone bad a couple of seasons. So uh, a guy to be careful about. But at the same time, if I had him on my roster and he's been doing okay, I sure wouldn't drop him. For the next, at least I'd wait a week or so and see what happens in terms of the closer situation in Atlanta. And we should point out that uh, Roldis Vizcaino is not exactly the second coming of Mariano Rivera at the best of times. His record has been spotty, to say the least. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, this is a guy absolutely with a very spotty kind of record, even the, in the days when he was when he was doing well. Uh, his skills were not all all that great. Um, so I, while he's uh, he's got he's got marginal closer skills, uh, as you said, he's not the next coming of a world as Chapman. I don't know. He had a 160 ERA and a 119 WHIP last year, and I think a lot of people fell in love with those two numbers and didn't take a look at what was lying underneath them, and because what was lying underneath them wasn't that good. I totally agree with you that anybody who owns Jim Johnson should be hanging on for the near future anyway. And if you can get Jim Johnson in your league, it shouldn't cost you much. Might be a good play. It might be. I mean, you know, in a lot of leagues, he's still sitting out there, I think, because 
folks anticipated that uh, that Vizcaino was going to come back and grab the closer role immediately, and so far that simply hasn't happened. All right, Nick, uh, some good thoughts. I appreciate you taking the time to fill us in on National League news, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing pretty fine, Jock. It's beautiful weather here around 30 degrees Celsius, 90 degrees Fahrenheit with a southwest wind. It's a fantastic day. And here I am in the basement working on a podcast. So i try to get it over with and out there for all you listeners, and I'll get outside and maybe go to the pool. Uh, let's get started with uh, Shinsu Chu. We talked about him last week on the pod. It turns out it's a broken arm. There was some question whether he might make it back before the end of the season. That looks extremely unlikely at this point. He's out for the rest of the year. So, Jock, I know we covered this, but now that we know he's gone, who do we target in the slightly less crowded Texas outfield? Well, Rod Truesdale analyzed this for uh, playing time today, and, and, and there's going to be a number of players that are going to get shots and choose lineup spot. Uh, I think the biggest PT gainers, playing time ba- uh, gainers, look like uh, Jerickson Profar and Delano Shields. In fact, uh, manager Jeff Bannister uh, stated a couple of days ago that uh, these guys were going to be um, alternating in left uh, t- to see who can produce. Uh, Ryan Rua got called up to replace uh, um Chew on the on the roster, so he's going to get a lot of starts in right field. Um, but uh, I would think that the Shields and Rua would be getting most of the most, or the Shields and Rua would probably be getting most of the starts against uh, against left-handed pitching. Huh, that strikes me as a bit of a surprise uh, because. Uh... The, uh, when you look at DeShields, he just doesn't hit left-handers or right-handers that well. Uh, 694 OPS against right-handers. Uh, um, Rua's down below 700 against right-handers as well. I thought Profar would get the lion's share against right-handers, and maybe uh, maybe DeShields would spot in there. And I still think that could happen because, uh, you know, the, the, the abilities are just so different. But in six weeks, it's such a short run. Uh, DeShields gets, you know, four hits on Monday and, f- and three hits on Tuesday he could be in there for two weeks yeah exactly and and Profar has actually been slumping recently uh, as we speak he has a 182 batting average through 82 at bats over the past month so uh, like you said uh, Texas hasn't quite locked this up they have a commanding lead they're going to put uh, the person in there who, who's ever getting the hits and uh, and yeah the Shields uh, BPIs don't look terrific he, he's not making a lot of hard contact but he does have that speed and uh, sometimes that wins out Oddly enough, he's a he's a pretty poor outfielder for a guy who can really run and has baseball in his genes, as it were. His dad was a big leaguer, of course. And uh, the the other question I have for you is about Ryan Rua. He really strikes out a lot, like a third of the time. But he but he's got a pretty potent bat when he makes contact. Yeah, he does, and uh, and he hits uh, he hits left hand uh, left handed pitching well. So he's going to be in the lineup a little bit. And you're absolutely right about the Shields. The Shields has never been a good defensive player, uh, and that's one of the reasons he lost out. Uh, I, I never looked at him as a long term solution in center field um, for uh, Texas. He's probably been a little bit better in left, but uh, um, he's not a very good outfielder. It's very surprising. Down in Oakland, infielder Jed Lowry is done for the year. He has a foot injury. Rod Truzell covered this story for playing time today as well. What's going to happen in Oakland with Jed Lowry done for the year? Well, they've promoted uh, rookie Chad Pender, and they've, they've really got kind of a 
cast of thousands there at, uh, at at second base, which was where Lowry was was playing most of his games. Um, Max Muncie is on the big side of a platoon. Um, we've uh, we've we've bumped his forecast a little bit, but he hasn't been much of a fantasy. Uh, asset. He, he was actually hitting fairly well a couple of weeks ago, but he's died since then. Not a lot of power, very little speed, um, generally below replacement level. You've got Tyler uh, Ladendorf or Ladendorf. Um, he's now on the deal with a sprained wrist, but he didn't have a lot of upside uh, either. This is an interesting opportunity for, for Pinder. Um, I was really high on Pinder last year in Double A. I, I don't know if you recall, but he, I think it was the runner-up for the batting title in the second lead. Now, uh, I'm sorry, in the Texas League, um, his problem—he he has a mediocre uh, uh, walk to strikeout rate. Uh, he's got a big swing. When he barrels up, he makes pretty good contact. But uh, he's really stalled this year in Triple A. Uh, he hit about 256. He hit double-digit home runs. But his walk strikeouts didn't improve at all, and uh, I'm afraid that batting average is gonna is gonna really exploit him. That that, that those plate skills uh, once he gets into the majors, it'll be interesting to see what he does. It's a tough position for a guy his age to be thrown into a, into the big leagues because they really have very few other options. Rather than leaving him to grow into his body and figure out what he's doing out there, it's it's a trial by fire for Chad Pinder, and it's going to be interesting to watch. I have to say that I don't think he's rosterable in a mixed league, and I'd have my questions about even in an American League only format, just because he's so raw and so young. I don't know, Jock. He could do as much harm as good on a on a fantasy roster. I think. Yeah, and that's the problem you have with six weeks uh, six weeks left in the season. He's going to get time. He's going to get an opportunity to show what he can do. But uh, I'm looking at that batting average. I'm looking at those plate skills. And even in Oakland, where I mean, we we talked about the double digit home runs he hit. He hit that in the Pacific Coast League, which obviously is a notorious hitters league. I'm not sure what he's going to do in this uh, MLB debut. I'm not sure he's ready. Of course, uh, it a lot depends, as we always say on this podcast, Jock. It depends where you are and what you need. Uh, if you've got a bad middle infielder in an American League only, and uh, there's a chance that Chad Pinder could be an upgrade, and you need an upgrade somewhere, hey, throw some money at him in your fab, or take a shot at him because uh, you know there's not going to be that many more choices with six weeks left to go. Uh, talking about Chad Pinder, I have Lore Michaels coming up as our featured guest, and you know Lore, of course, he has a connection with the A's, so I'll be sure to ask him about his opinion on Chad Pinder as well. Meanwhile, a miracle story, Stephen Wright in Boston is on the DL. He's got a shoulder uh, injury that he incurred while he was pinch running for David Ortiz. I know you're trying to use your players in new and novel ways, trying to make up for roster shortings, but maybe this is an example of why you should really think twice about doing that. Uh, Matt Dodge on the beat with this story in playing time today. What's the scoop on the Boston rotation with Wright out? Yeah, isn't that the truth about Wright, too? And and, and I'm kind of surprised Boston did this uh, because of the risk you're talking about. Wright's actually been their most consistent pitcher all year. I mean, he's got 13 wins and, a, and I think a 301 ERA for the season. So what he's doing on the base paths, I have no idea. The good news for Boston is, is it wasn't a, a, a a pitching injury, so to speak. Uh, he could be back uh, as early as next week or, or midweek uh, sometime. Um, Clay Buckholz has come out of the bullpen for a couple of starts. Uh, he um, he actually looked good the other the other day against Detroit. Uh, on the other hand, his BPIs aren't terrific. Uh, 
far be it from any of us to say go out and, and grab uh, Clay Buckholz, uh, not just because Stephen Wright is projected to come back. His skills haven't been that great. Uh, I guess this is good news for Boston that he pitched well against Detroit in case they have any uh, um, other uh, rotation issues. But uh, for those owners of Wright, uh, um, it, it looks like at least the Red Sox are being optimistic that he's going to return shortly. Yeah, those uh, two starts that he had uh, filling in for Wright against Arizona, he was bad against Detroit. I think he looked better than he was. They're both PQS two starts. He had very few strikeouts, almost as many walks. Uh, I don't think Clay Buckholz is any kind of solution un- unless your problem is you're not le- you know, allowing enough earned runs in some kind of reverse zombie league where you're trying to get lots of runs scored against you. Uh, Stephen Wright, for his part, when he comes back, He's kind of uh, lost some momentum after that tremendous start. He had a big, long string of really good starts, PQS 4s and 5s, all the way through sort of the middle of June. And then all of a sudden lately, boy, uh, I'm looking at his chart. He's got three PQS 0s, a couple of 2s. He has a couple of 5s in there as well, but he's certainly been much less consistent since uh, the All-Star break, shall we say, than he was before it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Wright, uh, Wright has not pitched as well as he did in the first couple of months. The one thing he has done, though, is for the most part, he's gone deep into games, and he's been in enough games to get wins. So I know it's tough to predict wins, but if you're looking for a guy to get you wins and Stephen Wright is available, that Boston offense is pretty potent. Yes, they are, and uh, they've had a bit of trouble with their bullpen lately, but it's a well-run team. They do score runs, and he does, because the knuckleball is so easy to throw is a big part of it, he does get deep into games uh, unless he's pitching really poorly, which has been the case a couple of times. Uh, Speaking of pitchers in New York, the fireballer Nate Eovaldi is going to need Tommy John surgery, so goodbye to him for this year and next. Matt Dodge in playing time today reported that Luis Sessa will get the next shot at the New York rotation on Saturday against your Angels in Anaheim. Is there any fantasy value for uh, Luis Sessa? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, he's only been used in long relief while in the majors. The sample size of 19 innings is is pretty small, but he's given up five home runs, and the Angels have hit home runs this year. Uh, that's a big red flag in the AL East, too, when he, when he heads back uh, back to the East Coast. Uh, he's fared pretty well as a starter in AAA. He's got an, an 8.0 dom uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a command of a, a, a th- uh, three to one strikeout to walk ratio and 14 starts uh, and his home runs are lower there so um, there may be a little hope for him I would keep an eye out for maybe Adam Adam Warren uh, he might get consideration he hasn't been particularly good this year also we bumped Chad Green up slightly and he's probably my favorite of the new of the new Yankee pitchers put in a word a good word for Severino too I'll tell you what his BPIs are much better than his uh, than his ERA suggests uh, he, he struck out a lot of hitters in his last start Left too many balls over the plate. Might not be good right now. Might not be worth a roster spot. But uh, I still think he has potential upside over the long haul. Chad Green had a PQS4 his last time out against Toronto. Toronto's a tough team to pitch against. But before that, in previous starts, mostly zeros, twos, and a three in there. So uh, he's a, a, a new guy, a young guy. Chad Green would be more of a speculation than a, than an informed decision, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, anytime we're talking about rookie pitching in the last six weeks of the season, um, you're, you're speculating. Staying with the Yankees, Jock, they've announced that Gary Sanchez is going to be their primary catcher for the rest of the season. Brian McCann is going to be the primary DH, not catching very much at all. Matt Dodge covered this story as well. What are the effects on the uh, New York Yankees setup? 
Well, there's really not much um, playing time effect overall. They brought Sanchez up to play, and he's and he's playing, uh, and he's really crushed it in the early going. He's hit five home runs and 50 at bats. Uh, obviously, he's not going to keep doing that. Um, he's he needs to improve his uh, his plate skills a little bit. But uh, there's a there's some optimism, I think, on Sanchez, and and the Yankees like the way he's improved his catching skills. Uh, uh, McCann's going to see the re- most of his at bats at DH the rest of the season. Um, he's going to get, uh, obviously, 20-game eligibility at, at DH in, in leagues that uh, require that to qualify, uh, along with catcher. Um, on the other, and New York could be soliciting trade offers for McCann, uh, perhaps even a waiver deal. Um, this puts Austin Romine in the backup and limits his playing time. Um, um, we've dropped him, I think, 10% in our baseball HQ playing time forecast. He's had a pretty good plate approach this season, uh, 9% uh, walk rate, 87% contact, and he's made good hard contact. So he could still give useful results as a number two catcher in, uh, in AL-only leagues. I'm curious what you think about the news that Gary Sanchez is going to catch a lot in the longer term. Now, Gary Sanchez is going to be a prize next year in drafts because, you know, he's going to, he's going to bash. He's uh, got catcher eligibility. That's going to attract a lot of people. But are you concerned at all that by having to go behind the plate 135 times a year rather than DHing 135 times a year, that's a lot of wear and tear on the body. Catching's hard. And we know from past experience that it sometimes, because of the defensive demands, because of the physical demands, the the fact of having to be a catcher can affect your offense. Yeah, I know. I agree with you completely. In fact, I'm not even sure the Yankees are going to have him behind the plate 135 times out of the year. My guess is that uh, over the course of his career, he's going to see a lot of time at DH. And, and even early on, uh, they like his throwing arm. They think he's improved. Um, boy, if, if I were the Yankees, I'd be I'd be you know making sure I had a good number two catcher behind him that can see at least uh, at least a couple maybe three starts a week in place of uh, Sanchez and of course Mark Teixeira is uh, retiring after this year so there's a possibility I guess they could throw Sanchez in there at first base once in a while depending on how their DH and catcher spots shake out I'm sure they'll be busy in the free agent market in the offseason as well so that's something to watch I agree with you I think that they're probably going to try really hard to limit his catcher innings just because of the wear and tear he's uh, not a young man especially but he's certainly not a fully mature man either Uh, our last story Jock if it's a story at all Detroit uh, traded to acquire shortstop Eric Ibar. Is this a story? Um, yeah, only in the sense that um, I think Jose Iglesias has a strained hammy and there's only six weeks left in the season. So you don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, he could be out uh, most of the rest of the season. He could be out three weeks. There's only six weeks left, obviously, uh, like we've said. Um, he's he, he might even, Ibar still might be a, an offensive upgrade over Iglesias, who was only hitting 245. Uh, his, his, his 607 OPS is unimpressive for the year. He's been better lately. Um, he's uh, he's hitting. He's, his contact rate has risen again. It had normally been in the high 80s in years. He's not making the hard contact he used to, and he's not the defensive player that he used to be. Um, but again, we're talking six weeks. We're talking about an experienced guy. He's coming back to the American League from the National, where he knows most of the pitchers. Um, if your infield, if your middle infield is really in need, this is a guy who can make 87, 88% contact. He has some experience. If he gets lucky down the stretch, you know, he could hit 280, 290. He's done that before in the majors. He may even steal a handful of bases. Um, but again, you're speculating here. We're talking about six weeks, and you really have to need infield help to uh, want to roster Eric Ibar. 
Uh, I read somewhere that his OPS for the second half is around 700, so he's uh, squaring it up a little more than he was earlier in the year. That's a positive sign, but like you say, six weeks to go, practically anything can happen. I think given the amount of plate appearances it takes to solidify a player's uh, OPS in six weeks, he could be anywhere from 400 to 1,000 and still be within the normal range for a guy of his skill. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wide range for sure. Okay, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, I know you're going down to San Diego for a beer festival of some kind this weekend, so have a good time. Stay away from the uh, steering wheel, and uh, I'll talk to you again next week. Will do, man. See ya. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's Director of News and Analysis, covers the American League West for playing time tomorrow, and writes speculator columns. Also, he's our American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with the fantasy baseball Zen master, Lore Michaels of Masters Ball, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. Lore, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, Patrick, thank you for having me back. It's it's always we always, as you know, we always have a good fun, good time talking about anything. In fact, we talked for 10 minutes while you were setting up. (laughs) About, uh, yes, about Van Gogh and Andy Warhol and romanticism in the the arts. Uh, Yeah, it's always fun to talk with you too, Lauren. I was usually, uh, when I start these interviews, I always ask you how your teams are doing in your various experts leagues, but I know how your American League tout team is doing. You're one point behind me and coming fast. I was was saving that. You know, I'm just sort of mapped out my my team so I could go over them. but I was yes indeed I was saving tout for last cuz I mean I think we're going to uh, we're going to have a real dogfight there amongst all four of us uh, I know there's I think 11 12 points between Seth and me uh, being first and fourth with with you and Larry Schechter stuck in the middle but if you look at the points there I think six or five of the categories some combination of the three of us are bunched together so and you know, a hot day on OBP, and all of a sudden Seth and Larry drop below me. Uh, I think a hot day in WHIP, and all of a sudden they drop below you. So you know, it, it's 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 all. And they they have the points to. The good thing you and I, I like being in this position. The good thing you and I have going for us is they have vulnerable vulnerable points that we can get, but not too many people are close to getting to us in those same categories. 
Yeah, I've got a. I'm looking over my shoulder in a few categories. I'm looking back at some guys, in some others. I feel comfortable, and that's usually the way it goes at this time of year. But uh, it is a really exciting race because uh, not only am I close to some of the guys that are around me, you and and uh, Larry Schechter and Seth Trackman, but also there are other guys chasing those guys there are other guys chasing me everybody's angling for position i think it is a four team race at this point but when you add up as i often do in my in my borderline obsessive way all the points that could be won or lost it's conceivable that any of us could win and any of us could finish second third fourth yeah no i i i <laughs> i'm i'm i don't know if i'm obsessed if i i i my my family when I started seriously playing golf again said I was obsessed and I kept saying no 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 I'm focused but uh, I I'm a neurotic enough to spend the same amount of time looking at the categories every day and going okay like I survived today I got points here okay okay <laughs> I do that I stare at them uh, you know I just stare at them I do that with most stats I do that with my Stratomatic cards I do that when I look through the old Macmillan book. I don't know what it is that draws me to that, but I just like to stare at the numbers, and I think I learn as much or get as much of a feel for a player just by this sort of visual osmosis and staring at stat lines as most people get by, you know, looking things up and running algorithms and stuff. I'm not sure why it works that way, but it does. I think a large part of it just stems from having done it for a long time. You know, the uh, the stories about the great athletes, I'm, I'm thinking in particular being here in Canada, we used to hear an awful lot about Wayne Gretzky. And there were sports psychologists and what have you who whose opinion was that because he started so young that – over the time, you, you develop a sense for the pattern and shapes of things rather than for the details of things. Uh, I, I think there's some truth to that. And, and I was, I don't know, I was drawn to reading those numbers when I first started collecting baseball cards. I just looked at the back, and they, I don't know what it was that it still is, that I could just stare at them for hours. I can, I can still visualize myself with a, you know, a, a, a 1960 Dick Williams card, which I think was green and yellow, and, and just looking at the back of it, of it and reading everything and just looking at all the numbers and just, you know, or, well, the, 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 the parallel, and now I do it on baseball reference, but I used to do it, you know, I had a old, uh, the Macmillan stat book, and you'd look up how many walks Daryl Evans had, because it came up in a, in a discussion, and then all of a sudden it's, well, how about Dwight Evans? Okay, who had the most walks of anybody named Evans? Okay, who had the most strikeouts? And you know, the next thing I know, I'm just flipping from page to page, and three hours are gone, and I talk, talk about a waste of time. But on the flip side, though, when I was younger, I, could, I just remembered everything on the back of the cards. And, you know, when I'm in third, fourth grade, my friends all accused me of memorizing them, and I would be indignant and say, what? who would do that? <laughs> I just remember it. I'm not doing this on purpose. I just remember it. But believe me, I can't imagine a stupider waste of time than trying to remember Don Demeter's stat line. <laughs> How are your other teams doing? You play in several experts leagues, of course. Are you being as successful there as you are in Tout? Uh, labor, I'm kind of in the same position as Tout, although I, I got, I'm in fifth place. I got about 65 points, but unfortunately, and there, Mr. Schechter's got a commanding lead. He's in the 90s, and he doesn't look too vulnerable. So uh, Tristan Cockroft is out there also in the middle, and I believe Mr. Gardner, who's a very fine player, Steve Gardner, who's our 
our curator. So labor, I've got I've got about the same team, but I, I mean I took different players, but same same construct I used, uh, and they're they're okay, but they're not, I don't think they're going to be good enough to win. XFL is the hardest league in which I play. I think just because everybody's so savvy to minor leaguers and college players that it's just really it's just really hard. Um, so I think I'm I'm like seventh or eighth, maybe ninth in that. And there's a the local league I did, the Barf League, the Bay Area Rotisserie Fantasy League. You know, I my top three picks were uh, were were Clayton Kershaw, AJ Pollock, and Chris Sale. And I traded Chris Sale before Kershaw went down, week before Kershaw went down. So I don't have my top three picks. I, I mean, once they started going, I sank like a rock. I I, I traded Jeff Samarjda for. Stephen Souza to try to fill the Pollock hole, and, and it worked for a while while Sale and Kershaw were pitching. But boy, it's really, really difficult in the draft league to win when all three of your top picks are gone. <laughs> so, and my uh, Stratomatic team's pretty good, so I'm having a pretty okay year. Laura, you recently had a column on the Masters Ball Hot page looking at some of the new young players coming into Major League Baseball after the deadline trades. I'd like to get your capsule versions on some of your comments because I found them really interesting. Let's start with Dilson Herrera. You called him a former Mets prodigy. Of course, now he's on the Reds through the Jay Bruce deal. What is it about Dilson Herrera that caught your eye? Um, I think the thing that mainly caught me uh, was he... His, his, he had pretty good plate discipline and power at a very, very early age. Hit with power. Uh, you know, I mean, he only hit the major leagues, at, at, I think, at the age of 20 when he made his debut. Oh, 21, I guess. But, you know, he what, hit 299, hit 58 homers, knocked in almost 300 runs over that span, and a 361 on base percentage. When a kid that's 20 years old can do that at double-A, triple-A, that's... That's a pretty good sign, uh, and and he was actually scored number one in my top two hundred and fifty prospect list last year in two thousand fifteen. That is, so uh, th- those are just um, those are just numbers that say I I, I have a real I might be raw, but I have a real serious skill set here in my ability to judge the strike zone and take advantage of it. You note that Boston seemed to have struck gold with uh, outfielder Andrew Benintendi, speaking of young players getting to the major leagues in a hurry, and he's off to a pretty impressive start with the Red Sox. He, he is, and uh, again, the things I liked about him is he, he's, he's a year older than Herrera, um, and, and one of the things I liked about him is he deferred. He was, he was drafted uh, out of high school, but then he deferred to go to college for a few years, and, and I, I think that's a good thing for you know we're all different but i think that's not a bad path for someone who, who to go when they're available for a young person just to get a couple of years out of high school a couple of years into your built kind of running your own life a little bit uh, as an independent but boy the guy was just crushed it uh uh, in in a in a short time in the ma- in, in the minors, forty one percent of his hits have gone for extra bases, and and he's got uh, three ninety on base percentage, more walks than strikeouts, just just over a little uh, you know basically a season's complement of games. That's again, that's that's really good for a kid that young. If he's and you know he only had twenty homers in that span, but thirty eight doubles and sixteen triples uh, over a hundred and fifty five hundred and sixty games is. That's really good. Really good. (laughs) 
I'm looking into the uh, young Cleveland infielder Jose Ramirez for a BaseballHQ.com facts and flukes spotlight a deep dive on on him and he's he's a, a lot the same way very impressive plate discipline and I hope uh, people enjoy that when they read it. The Phils might have an interesting potential starter in Jake Thompson. You say and Laura, I have to say I'm normally pretty leery when a young player gets traded a couple of times and Thompson has been traded twice in his young career, but you're still optimistic about him. What is it about Jake Thompson you like? Strikeouts, um, you know, I like strikeouts. I like whip. Um, I, I keeping runners off base and making them miss bats is a good thing. Uh, and you know, I mean, part of the deal could be that the team that, that where he gets traded is is the team that had him had a surplus, traded him to another team that had a deficit, then they get a surplus. And I, I th- and plus, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes in, in making trades. They're a lot more complicated than than just I'll get you know, I'll give you A for B. There's contract considerations and and, and things like that, that that general managers uh consider. But but you know, he he had almost a strikeout uh per inning. It's a minor leaguer. Uh he's had just about a, a, enough He's, he's thrown, I think he's got 90 starts, 500 innings pitch. That's just enough to kind of get a feel for he should be able to move into the majors, I don't know, seamlessly, but but, but move in and, and, and be able to take charge. He also only allowed 31 homers over 503 innings. So that's like what, like one every six or 12 innings instead of one every nine. That's That's, again, pretty good. So it tells me he knows how to keep the ball down. And with Nola and Eikhoff on the team, too, I think he just has to kind of settle in as a third or fourth guy and a lot less pressure, and I think that also bodes well. I was thinking about it also, and sometimes, especially at the when you're talking about deadline trades rather than off-season trades, it's often the case that uh, a team is looking for, when they're trading away the stud, they're looking for somebody really good. And it isn't necessarily that his previous team is giving up on Jake Thompson, it's just that he was the price they had to pay to get what they needed. And uh, and it could actually be kind of a, a something to think about from his point of view in his favor. Yes, very, very well said. Very well said. You have a name to add to what you call the hmm list for the closer role in Atlanta. A lot of people would call it the list. What's the story with the uh, Atlanta bullpen? Uh, well, of course, you know, the trick The trick to getting saves is, is your team at least has to be good enough to win some games. I'm not sure. I th- I, I'm actually going to enjoy watching Atlanta. I love it when teams completely deconstruct all of, all of the old rays. They, they, they really did kind of set the tone for the last 15, 20 years on, on all right, we're just going to trade everybody away for our prospects, and then we're going to rebuild from scratch, and we're going to bite it for a couple of years, and then we'll be good. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm hoping the Braves are doing that. Um, Jim Johnson is pretty clearly the, the closer. They, sell, uh, they traded uh, Vizcayeno, and it seemed like Mauricio Cabrera was the, was the closer of the future. But, but Brandon kind of is... Oh, I would have dismissed Brandon kind of. He's he's kind of a, a write-off guy, but uh, he's got 39 saves in the minors. He's got 194 strikeouts over 190 innings he had, which obviously you want that from a dominant guy. And and he also back to the homers per innings. He he only gave up 10 homers over essentially 200 innings, which means one uh, if you're a starter, that's one every two starts. Uh, it, the way it factors out, and just 139 hits, so he could be. Obviously, be dominant, um, 
or at least those numbers suggest he has the capability. And I think also, for the most part, closers are guys who come into their own. They're kind of like catchers. A lot of the times they don't come into their own till they're almost in their peak years, 27, 28, 29. They kind of have learned how to pitch. Um, there wasn't a role for them, and one they, they they got used to being in the pen. They had that's where they learned their control and to manage their uh, their command. And I, I think just think kind of might be one of those kind of guys. You said in the article the Twins got a good return from their Eduardo Nunez deal with the Giants. I, I did. Um, I rated uh, Adalberto Mejia very high uh, the last couple of years of my minor league list. In fact, I remember at first pitch Arizona two years ago, uh, um, um, Brent asked me to, to cover some Giants and uh, uh, minor leaguers, and, and Mejia was the first guy on my list. Um, so he's a real hard thrower, and I think they're going to really like him. But the Giants are you know, scrambling for a pennant, and Matt Duffy was hurt. Matt uh, Getting Nunez made Matt Duffy expendable because so, Nunez can play third. But the Giants have also had trouble at second, keeping guys healthy between Panic and Tomlinson. And so he can, Nunez can play both of those slots, and, and he can hit and he can steal bases. I, I think he's a, a good fit for that team. And finally, in our Tout Wars League, I wanted to ask you about a deadline trade. Uh, as you know, I traded my way to get the top fab budget, and I landed Jonathan Lucroy, who clearly looked like the prize in the league crossers. But do you think maybe I should have instead bid on Gary Sanchez? He's off to a ridiculous start. He's off to a ridiculous start. No, I think he did the right thing. He, you know, you can't you can't count on a guy coming up from the minors and, and crushing the way Sanchez has. And Luke Roy will adjust. He's a good hitter. He'll be fine, uh, or at least I think he'll be fine. Or maybe the, the, thing, the thing you need to hear is, I would have done, if I were you, I would have done the same thing. So, but, but Sanchez, yeah, we saw him in the fall league last year, and he, he, he could really hit. He does strike out. So his on-base percentage is 50, 60 points lower than that of uh, of. of be intendi and and uh, it's a little bit lower than uh, than Herrera, so his contact rate needs to work out. He could be exploited, but again, the flip side is he's a catcher, um, and as a young catcher, the main thing the Yankees are going to want him to do is the first thing is to work the pitching staff, and hitting will come secondary. So, uh, and uh, you know, it's kind of like closers uh, coming into their own a little bit later. And so I, I uh, but I, but this, this, to answer your question, I would have done the same thing. I feel reassured then. Now you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels from Masters Ball. And Lore, you're very close to the Asia, a San Francisco Bay Area guy. You see a lot of Oakland games. So let me start by talking about the Oakland rotation. Sonny Gray is on the DL. Most of the other A's starters have been underwhelming this year, including Sonny Gray for that matter. What does the rotation look like for the balance of the year? And especially, are there any fantasy assets who might be available in that revamped uh, A's rotation as they try to figure out what they're doing? The answer to your question is they look terrible. Um, they do pitch in a pitcher's park, and, and Billy, the, to his credit, Billy's very good at, at whip pitchers, which is, uh, that's what I look first for pitchers. How, how effective is a guy at keeping runners off base? On the other hand, there's no, uh, other than Manaya, nobody that the team has looks like they have 
that potential dominance. I, I really, in the minors, look for strikeouts in, in, in to to translate. Uh, they, they're not going to translate one for one always from the minors to the majors, but you have to be able to put away a hitter when you need to, and that that's what a hard thrower does. But you know, the poor. Not that the A's were going to be a dominant team this year, but they got 15 guys on the DL right now, and eight of them are pitchers. Gray's supposedly Gray's done for the year. Um, I, I do like uh, Graveman. Uh, in fact, I have him on both my labor and my tout teams, and he's come along pretty well of late. But and and Manai is improving, but he's still a rookie. If you're going to take a flyer in there, there's Ross Detweiler, but otherwise. I, I, he's a real flyer in a deep AL only league, but otherwise, I would just sort of play daily games and, and load up with uh, with with lefties against their righties and uh, in DFS and and lick my chops. I've also been reading about some A's prospects. There's been speculation that uh, third base, first base, uh, Renato Nunez. They got a first base outfielder named Matt Olson, shortstop named Chad Pinder. How likely are any of these three young position players to get called up before September, and how likely is any of them to be useful for fantasy? Uh, well, I, I think Pinder actually just did get uh, called up. I think uh, on the yesterday or anyway. So uh, the answer to his question is, or him is is yes. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I know they're trying to give Ryan Healy a real long chance, good chance to play third base, and Healy's got a pretty good glove and some power. But he's, I think, he had a minor league uh, on base percentage under 300. So I, I like Nunez a little better for that. Um, and I think I think all of the I think uh, both Nunez and Olson will get uh, September call ups. And and Olson Olson has a little better, or I, I was I'm sorry, it's a, uh, it, that that uh, has a little better on base than uh, I think it's Nunez actually who has a 291 on base percentage. Right, Hughes was a little higher, but but not that not much. Um, and and Olson's got some pretty good power. I think he has a chance. That, uh, what I would look for in him is spring training next year. If he makes an impression, then he's going to probably be the number four outfielder. Uh, Coco Crisp is probably he's getting long in the tooth, and and so they're going to be looking for options uh, to replace him. Obviously, Josh Reddick is gone, Billy Burns is gone, so the outfield there is kind of up for grabs. As for Pinder, he's a guy I really like a lot, but they got Marcus Simeon. They've been working it with at shortstop, so I I I see Pinder possibly moving to second base, or because he's got an arm. He too could move to the outfield. He's the best of the three. Um, they also have a guy, third baseman, that I think is the real third base of the future. Uh, I think his name is Matt Chapman, who I think he's still playing in Double A, but but he's the guy I would look at even as a long term third base uh, option over Nunez and Healy. Jed Lowry's on the sixty day DL. He's been a, a injury plagued pretty much his entire career. Uh, is there a chance that they uh, cut bait with him and, and maybe go with Pinder at second in 2017? That's what I would do. I would do it now. I mean, they're not going anywhere. you have very little to lose. If they want him to, what I would do with them is stick him at second base and then send him to the fall league to play second base every day and uh, see how he does. He's a shortstop. He should do just fine, <laughs> you know. That's like that's like being Perry Mason and people ask to please help at traffic courts, uh, you know. They also acquired Brett Eibner from Kansas City, and uh, he's played a little bit. What do you think of him? I like him. I, yeah, I, 
I look at players the same way Billy does. Uh, I, I, I know he gets his knocks for making the moves he does. I, I still regret that they let Carlos Gonzalez go, but because you could tell how good he was going to be. But, but for the most part, I, I, you know, I like him. I, I, I think Billy has a good idea on how to assemble teams. Sometimes it works. It's, he, he plays the majors like we play fantasy. He looks at certain numbers and. Some you know sometimes they coalesce perfectly and sometimes they don't. But but I like him. I I, I like most of Billy's acquisitions. Eibner's twenty seven years old. Really has never come out of the minors before. Uh, does it feel like a long shot, or is he one of those guys that just comes into his skills later in his career? Probably more long shot. Kind of uh, you, you know the young Vera Salarte kind of. I've been you know treading around, treading water for years and years and years, and here I am, and and I think. I, I, I don't look at him, I, you know, I, I kind of, I, we'll talk about him later, but I don't, there, I, I think he's more that than a, a, a Ryan Vogelsong, J-Hap, all of a sudden I turned into a really dominant pitcher kind of guy. Over on the other side of the Bay, Laura, the Giants are in a real dogfight with the Dodgers in the National League West. They got Hunter Pence back from injury, but he's really been struggling what are the odds do you think the Giants will bench Pence or, or reduce his playing time? And if they do, where do the plate appearances go? I think there's zero. He's he's so popular. He's the heart and soul of that team. Uh, he's beloved. He plays hard. He's a clubhouse leader. And he's delivered before. And he's he's been a good clutch player for them. I there I, I don't I if he's healthy there's no way they'll bench him. I think it's uh it's Pence Pagan and Span, uh as long as they're healthy is a compliment with Bl- uh with uh with, with Blanco in reserve. I I know they, they talk about Brandon Belt playing left field a little bit, but he's terrible out there, so I they're not gonna they're not gonna do anything but let let, let Hunter play. He again he's he's a real leader on that team. But since his return, he's got a two forty seven on base percentage. He's slugging two seventy nine. He's uh, looked a little bit lost at the plate. Twenty five strikeouts. He only has five walks. That's not like him. Is there a possibility that he came back without being fully healthy? Yeah, that's 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 a distinct possibility because he's been hurt a few times this year. He's hurt last year. Remember, he got hit first spring training game. He got hit and broke his hand. So, uh, and and he's he's. I don't want to call him a hyper guy, but he's one of those guys who plays hard and wants to play every day, so I don't think he wants to be on the bench. So maybe he did come back. But then that goes back again to the injury. If he's healthy, he's going to play. If he tells them he's healthy, I don't know what they could say other than okay. And if that's the case, they're going to throw him out there, again, just because he's so important to the team for so many other reasons than just his ability to play. Because I live in the Eastern Time Zone, I miss a lot of San Francisco games. How has Hunter Pence been defensively? Because that's always been a strength. He's been fine. He's pretty, you know. He's he's so funny to watch. He doesn't look like he doesn't do anything pretty. I guess I would say, but he certainly gets it done. Um, and he plays right field there. That you know, that's kind of a tricky part. He knows how to play right field off the brick wall there. Uh, and off the top of the stands, he's pretty. There's, there's also little doors and, and nooks and crannies in Giants right field, and he he knows it pretty well. Uh, you know, I I I just think I, I I just cannot imagine them benching him if he's if he says he's healthy. I just you know, it doesn't matter what he does. At least this year. And who do you like in the race, the Giants and the Dodgers, without Clayton Kershaw? 
Well, I say this as a Dodger fan growing up in Northern California because I didn't know I was contrary when I was a kid, but I think the Giants are going to get it done. The, 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 the Dodgers... The Dodgers seem to always have so much talent. Remember, they they come they always come out of spring training with eight too many starting pitchers, and look at them, and uh, you know, and they they I just don't think they coalesce as a team that well. And uh, the Giants have been there; They're, they've been slumping. It's true they've been playing horribly. However, uh, usually that tells me they're due to get hot, and I I I, I favor the Giants. I think they're going to be there in the end. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Lore Michaels from Masters Ball. And Lore, a month ago it looked like Jose Altuve was running away with the uh, American League MVP award, but Mookie Betts has made it, well, uh, at least interesting with a home run and RBI barrage in the last week or so. If you had to vote right now, who'd be your ma- most valuable player in the American League? Well, you know, Altuve and Betts are, are obviously killers, and, and my hat is off to you on, on Mr. Betts and in, in, in in, in tout that was that was a pretty savvy pickup and um, but I would give a long shot I mean, this is you know to David just to sense to talk about being sentimental uh, a, a shot to David Ortiz too who's having a pretty good year <laughs> he's kind of good um, but I I, I I probably in the long run it's Altuvier bets but Mookie Mookie is is a player he's really fun. He's been, he's he's had as monster a week as anybody's ever had, isn't he? What has he got like six homers or something? Thirty? He's got thirteen RBIs in two games, five homers, something like that. Two days. That's right. Yeah. That's that's just crazy. It's totally crazy. So and Altuve, I would be happy for any of the three of those guys to win. They're all Altuve and Betts are really fun to watch. Um, I believe it or not, thought Ortiz was shot four or five years ago. Uh, I never did understand the Twins getting rid of him or letting him go as, as easily as they did, but but it's very, very much fun to watch just how good, just, just how brilliantly he's leaving the game. It's an interesting story we can talk about on another occasion, but I'd just like to observe that sometimes organizations just get it in the in the organizational hive mind that a player isn't good or that a player doesn't fit their, their needs or that he's not going to develop. And, uh, you know, baseball lore is, is litter, littered with stories of players who were dropped or abandoned by teams who went on to be terrific players, and maybe David Ortiz is just one of those. It's, it's true. It's true. But you could, I don't know, again, it's, maybe it's that staring at the numbers stuff. I could tell when he was in Minnesota when they let him go, it's like, what the hell did you do that for? That seems stupid. Uh, it also reminds me, I think the Orioles originally, this is such a nothing guy, but when I was first really looking at minor league numbers, and Kevin Millar, I think, was a Rule 5 acquisition of the Marlins or something out of the Orioles. or I, I can't remember what minor league system he came up in, but he just had these numbers that just screamed that he was going to be good somewhere. and. Why they let him go I, beats me. In his Minnesota years, David Ortiz had a two sixty six batting average, but already a, an on-base percentage around three fifty, OPS around eight oh nine. Uh, it's a mystery. That's all I can say because I, I, I remember at the time the Twins were not 
a tremendous team. You know, it wasn't like they had this surplus of riches that they could afford to take a, a, an 800 OPS hitter and turn him loose. So maybe it was a positional thing, uh, but you'd think that he had lots of room at, as DH. It's just weird. And then Boston picks him up in his first year. He's the f- fifth-place MVP vote. Exactly. And and I can't think that he underwent some transmogrification that he was a, had a bad attitude in Minnesota and all of a sudden became a clubhouse darling once he went to Boston. So, you know, I'm, I suspect he was probably pretty much the same guy all along. So, I, yeah, it just beats me. But, you know, it's kind of what the, the mystery of what makes baseball so mysterious. It's, it's, it, you just never know how stuff's going to go. That's what's so fun about it. We could predict, we could look at numbers, we could chart a gazillion statistic, you, uh, uh, millions and millions and millions of at-bats and say, all right, this is what should happen this time, and then it doesn't. Or something that we never even imagined happens. That's even better. Of course, he changed his name. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. And uh, and uh, he was 26 when they let him go, and maybe they just thought they'd seen the best of him. Most, most players, to, to their... Uh, to be on the Twins' side briefly on this question, most players don't start getting really a lot better in their age 27 season. I mean, usually what you've seen 25-26 is what you're going to get followed by a decline, and maybe between the money they would have owed him, all those kind of things, maybe they just thought his future is not that bright, and he is an anomaly. There's no question about it in far, as far as the defying the age curve. Oh, he is. But there's other, you know, I think Warren Spahn was like that. I think Gaylord, or Gaylord Perry was like that. Um, Wade Boggs was like that. So, you know, it, it, it happens. Maybe that's why Boston was hep to him, because they had dealt with Wade Boggs, who I think didn't really start playing regularly until he was 25. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's all, it's all the, the, the grand mystery of baseball, I suppose, isn't it? But uh, I... Who knows? I would have kept them. If I'd been the GM, I would have kept them. Yeah, a lot of people look at the Twins team and say, if I were the GM, I would have done this different, that different. Uh, it's, sometimes it's uh, it's pretty easy to point those kind of things out with the Twins over the years, uh, especially in their most, most recent years. Uh, where do you stand on Ortiz as a Hall of Famer, as pr- primarily as a DH, pretty much entirely as a DH, except for the occasional swing at first base in National League parks? What, where, what's your opinion on his candidacy as a, as a uh, Hall of Famer and DHs in the Hall of Fame in general? Well, you know, if if I I don't think it's fair to discriminate. If if a guy gets 500 homers as a DH, 500 homers is a pretty good benchmark. And you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what else he did. And you can say what you want about what he his defense, but again, how important is he to the team? That guy is very important to that team. Uh, as a, again, you know, in the Pence ilk, as, as a clubhouse guy, as keeping things steady, uh, as being focused, as being an, a role model to the rest of the team, whether they were uh, position players or not, and and he did he did he did try it out his glove when asked to. Uh, I I I think if if we if we look at batters primarily from a, a dominance at a hitting perspective, then he was a not only not just dominant but ridiculously consistent. And I think he deserves it for that. I, I, I do. I, I also think Daryl and Dwight Evans deserve it too, though. So, there you go. 
But I don't think Deep Purple belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so what do I know? Laura, since we're on the topic of awards and MVPs and stuff, in the National League, who would be your vote for MVP if you had one? And uh, talking about real baseball. Uh, real baseball. Um, there's there's three guys I really like. I, I, I don't think we could deny uh, Nolan Arenado just how really, really good he is, um, even if his team isn't particularly good. And then the the other two guys... Uh, I, I really like a lot are Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant. Those, I think, I, I think it's a little early for Bryant, but I don't think it's too early for Rizzo. But probably if I had to pick one of the three, I'd take Arenado, not just because he's having a monster year this year, but he had a monster year last year as well. Yeah, terrific player. What about Cy Young Awards uh, starting in the American League? In the American League, oh, oh that's just, I, I, I can't possibly imagine... Giving it to Jay Happ, I just it's it, it scares me inside. I, I would probably think Sales the best pitcher in the league, but I, I I don't I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, Danny Duffy's a top five candidate, and I, I'm I'm not exactly what sure that what what that means other than going back to the beauty about baseball is you just never know what's going to happen. So you wouldn't vote for Jay Happ's uh, 17 wins, 250 ERA. Is that just prejudice against his past record? He's pitching well. Yes. <laughs> I've had him on teams for years, and actually I've, I always had him on teams for the first six weeks of the season because he was one of those guys like Mark Burley that nobody could touch him. He's a junk baller that nobody could touch him for six weeks. And then once they figured him out, they'd pound him. But yeah, I, you know, I'm sorry. I know, I know he pitches in your country, but, but no, it's, he's just, what, I, there's no way I can associate his name with Cy Young and feel good about it. Not only does he pitch in my country, Laurie pitches on my tout team. So let's have a little respect over here. I have total respect for you and your tout team. <laughs> So you don't even have a vote for uh, uh, American League Cy Young. How about the National League? A little, little uh, better pickings over there. A little better pickings, but you know the guy I really love is, is Kyle Hendricks. He's he's really good. I, I I I'm glad I'm glad I was sort of on his preseason bandwagon, and I I he's really really good. He's really really good. That team is really really good. Uh, they're going to be really fun to watch for the next three or four years till. Everybody becomes too expensive for them to keep. But, boy, they're going to be really good for the next few years. And, yeah, he's going to be a number two pitcher behind Ariadne, and he's still going to possibly win a Cy Young. That's, that's, that's pretty good. That's sort of like having Chris Bryant in the shadow of Anthony Rizzo. You know, that's, those guys are good. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lore Michaels from Masters Ball. And Lore, over the last few shows here at Baseball HQ Radio, for some reason we've been talking quite a bit about the new stats becoming available through StatCast and PitchFX and so forth, finding their way into the public sphere. How much are you incorporating this kind of new information into your own baseball analysis? Not, not at all. <laughs> I think they're fun to look at. I like looking at statistics and I like thinking about this stuff, but... You know, I, it's, it's, what is it? You know, it's a simple game. Bull Durham, you hit the ball, you throw the ball, you catch the ball. And, and I, I think that's one aspect of it. And I, I think that we get, and, and certainly I understand serious deep number crunching and looking at, at, at thousands of, of games and at bats and trends if you're playing daily games. That I can totally understand, especially if you're serious about playing daily games. And, but, 
I I think I I I, I stick with, uh, and I do kind of like W O B A. I'll at least look at it. But aside from that. To me, whip it on base percentage tell me everything I always need to know. That if you're a pitcher and you keep runners off base, there's less guys who are going to have a chance to score off you. And if you're a hitter and you can get on base, there's a greater chance you're going to score a run. And that's that's pretty simple, but it's it's the bottom line truth of the game always. I do like OPS because it suggests power. Uh, I like OPS linked to OBP because it suggests somebody has command of the strike zone. Um, and I like K strikeout to walk numbers, both pitchers and hitters, because again that tells me how effectively either one can manage the strike zone. Because when push comes to shove, the game is a battle about the strike zone. It's not a battle about where they'll hit the ball 37 percent of the time. It's not a battle about whether or not a ball will drop in, or there'll be a pass ball at a given time, or any number of obscure stats. It's it's all about getting on base and keeping guys off base. So I just stick with that, you know. Otherwise, plus, uh, you know me pretty well. I, I have a pretty busy brain. I tend to overthink everything as it is. So I don't want to confuse myself more than is absolutely necessary. You know, I've heard some people make that uh, make that statement as well that the new stats are they find them confusing and and adding a lot of noise to the process because there's just so much of it and it's it's still in early days for a lot of it and we're having a little bit of uh, um, acquisition difficulty in trying to figure out well okay now we know what his average bat velocity is. But what does that actually mean in the scheme of things? And I think that we're still feeling our way around in a lot of that stuff. But when you talk about the basic skills of the game, uh, hitting the ball, like making contact with the ball is a pretty important one. And uh, for the longest time at BaseballHQ.com and elsewhere, we, we looked at contact as at-bats without strikeouts. But now we have the capability of looking at contact as swings without misses. Isn't that a better way of looking at it? That, yes, that's that, that's totally that's totally fine. However, making contact and how you get on is is you know well you talk about the velocity. Guy could hit the ball really hard and everybody gets impressed, but if he hits it in the wrong spot, then <laughs> then it doesn't do him any good any more than making contact a lot. You know, Alfredo Griffin made really good contact, right? But but you know he still was a two sixty hitter, so. I, I, you know, if you extrapolate contact, and, and it, it is something that I think about, um, especially if there's a guy who, uh, like Alfredo Griffin, strike because Griffin struck out a lot too and didn't walk very much. So, in, in that context, yeah, all right. Well, he struck out a lot, yes, but he put his bat on the ball as well. At least he struck out a lot relative to how many times he walked. However, he did put his bat on the ball. He put the ball in play, and that's a good thing. So I, I, I do contextualize like that, but the ultimate question is: He puts his bat on the ball. Did he get him on base or not? And that that trumps, in my view, just making the contact. Well, it does. But then, if you add in uh, velocity off the bat, like who's making contact and hitting it hard, even if you just go with hard, medium, soft, I mean, the, the data are very clear on this topic. If you hit the ball a lot and hit it hard a lot, you're going to have better outcomes than a guy who does either or neither of of those two things. That's true, but if you're successful at it, doesn't that ultimately reflect itself in your on-base percentage and your slugging percentage? Well, it does, but then the the question is, 
if if you have a track record of good on base percentage, good slugging percentage, everybody knows. And therefore, you're not going to find any bargains. You're not going to find any sleepers. Where the sleepers are lying is guys who have the core skills but are not necessarily seeing the good results yet. And I think that's the real value of them in a fantasy in a fantasy lo- way of looking at it. But if you, uh, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. And I think if you look at guys when they're in the minor leagues and you look at their on-base percentage, you look at their strikeout-to-walk numbers, and you look at their... The other thing I look at, especially in minor leaguers, and, and I kind of mentioned this early on when we were talking about uh, Ben Tiendi and, and, and Dilson Herrera, is that what percentage of their hits go for extra bases? Because if they go for extra bases, even if they're not hitting them out of the park, that suggests some kind of power gaps, um, some kind of power speed where um, they have enough power to drive the ball into the gap and hit a double or drive the ball in the gap and even hit a triple and have speed to match that i think those numbers are all there or maybe it's just what you already said maybe i see that the way i look at numbers i contextualize because i've looked at them so long that i see the things that you're suggesting in what i'm looking at anyway but to me they're all subsets of whip and on base percentage and if you look at to look at herrera as an example or or Bentiendi because his you know the 38 doubles over 150 games and 16 triples that's 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 really incredible. So it 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 screams I've got power I've got gaps power I can control the strike zone I don't care where I hit I can do it and I, again that to me suggests he hits the ball hard it suggests to me he has speed it suggests to me he knows how to make contact so. I, I think I just see the I see what you're suggesting is just kind of a subset of the bigger whole of on base percentage and on base percentage and slugging and OPS are the things that tell me oh all these things coalesce into that higher plateau of numbers or or greater uh, piece of a bigger whole that those numbers are. Well, I can tell you uh, from the voice of experience that when you start rooting around in the deeper level stats. Uh, it does get sometimes like uh, Alice uh, through the looking glass and, and going down that rabbit hole and you find yourself like lost in a maze of it sometimes and you have to pull out and go, well, wait a second, uh, what's this guy's batting average? You know, I hate to say it, but what's this guy's on base percentage? Because I'd really like to know. And, and from that point of view, sometimes it does, as you suggest, really help to retain your perspective because uh, it's possible, as in golf, there are guys who can really hit the ball hard but they don't necessarily score well because there's more to the game than just hitting the ball hard. And speaking of golf, you're a real aficionado of fantasy golf. I know at Masters Ball you offer your picks for the tournaments as they come up. Uh, before we start, uh, I just want to talk about fantasy golf real briefly. I know this is a baseball show. What are the typical rule sets in a fantasy golf league? Um, well, I've been playing DraftKings, uh, which is, is the... Uh, we're, we uh, masters all partners with them, but I like their. They have a three dollar hybrid game, so it's not a whole lot of money. Um, but uh, I, I think most of the setups are kind of similar. Um, it, it's DraftKings itself has a fifty thousand dollars salary cap. I think if you play on, uh, on on the PGA, for example, on the PGA site, the, the the cap might be a little bit different. But basically, you have a salary cap. Uh, DraftKings, you select six golfers. So that means either you, you get 
eight, 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 you know, or six, eight thousand dollar guys or two ten thousand dollar guys. You have to scrounge at the bottom for a couple of five thousand dollar guys. Um, but basically, you select uh, six guys you think will do well. You get positive points for birdies, for pars, for eagles, and for also being uh, uh, on the leaderboard. And you get penalties for bogeys and, and double bogeys and etc. And uh, so, so that that's the basic setup. So you want you definitely want guys. Uh, as a rule, too, like you said, uh, just because somebody can slug the hit a drive 340 yards doesn't mean they're good at chipping or putting. And when push comes to shove, golf is about chipping and putting. As I, or as I write in this book, I'm I'm writing now about golf and life and stuff. Is I don't understand how I can hit my first two shots 450 yards, and it takes me five to go the final 15. So uh, there there are not scoring categories in the in the game that you play for greens and regulation, uh, hitting the fairway, drive distance, these kind of things, uh, uh, up and downs, that kind of stuff. No, I could actually though I could I could see the game evolving to that, um, but uh, but and these guys are really really good for the most time they stay in the fairway and they hit the green in regulation. So, but uh, no, it's mostly just birdies, pars, eagles, and being a board, uh, a leader, and then um, and and you know the 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 thing you have to look at when you're picking your roster is not just not just is is making the cut. That's the the single most important thing, because it's it, it alluded to fantasy baseball. Um, it, you know, for right now, or at least while he was a Met, Dilson Herrera might have been a great prospect, but he wasn't a good guy to have on your team because he didn't get at bats. You don't make the cut, you got no chances for pars or birdies. So you really that that's that's the thing to look at as a primary, at least as I see it. Um, and also, you have to really know. This is where I'm derelict in golf, uh, unlike baseball or football. Is I don't. I just. I, I'm. I'm so new to playing fantasy golf, and I've only really been playing golf again for a year and a half after a 40-year layoff. That you have to really know all the players and what their not just what their skill sets are, because you know uh, who is it? Bubba Watson can drive the ball farther than anybody else, but he he can't chip like Phil Mickelson can. And that's just that. And, and Mickelson can't drive the ball like like Bubba can. That's just that. So most ball, most most golfers, just like any athlete, are good at their game. And there's a specific aspect of it to it that they really really excel at. Um, but so but but that's the other thing is really. And and I'm hoping with time and familiarity that you, you, it's good to know what the home course is. For wherever the tournament's being played, there's always a couple of guys that that's their home course, that's where they played. Um, and knowing that, knowing, uh, again, if a, if a course is smaller, it's not going to suit uh, Bubba Watson as well as it's going to suit a guy with that, that, that maybe only hits his drives 280 but uh, has a very good controlled shorter game. So, And I'm not knocking Bubba. He's actually one of my favorite golfers. I love watching him. I don't know what it is about the lefties. I really like him and Mickelson a lot. They're really fun to watch for me. I was going to say that there's probably more of a park effect than uh, than in baseball, in in golf, especially in fantasy golf, because there are players who play even even like left to right versus right to left. A, a lot of those guys shape their shots more accurately one way or the other, and you'd have to know which which holes are more likely to reward that that ability or that tendency than in baseball where okay he's a left-handed hitter in Yankee Stadium we get it it's a, it's a relatively short porch but it's more nuanced in golf it seems to me now uh 
what is a typical price for a top golfer? So uh, Rory McIlroy or uh, Stenson or one of the guys who's recently, Jason Day, one of these guys who's a really good golfer, what would his salary be? It, it, it varies from week to week. Like uh, I actually picked Daniel Summerhays a couple of weeks ago as a sleeper, and I think he was $6,800. But And he had a really great, I, I don't think it was, I don't think he did well in the PGA. I think it was the Travelers. I can't remember, but but all of a sudden there was a leaner field last week at the John Deere because everybody was at the Olympics. So all of a sudden he became a ten thousand dollar player because that was his home course. Um, uh, usually the the top about eleven eleven three eleven four is about the top you pay for most guys most of the time. It's possible a spice could be twelve thousand, but it's pretty rare. Eleven eleven thousand is pretty much the top. And the good, solid, mean players are all between eight and nine thousand dollars. When you pick your roster, what do you what do you look at in, in a particular player uh, beyond uh, the obvious? Well, the, ob- the obvious is how many cuts they make. That for sure, I look I look to that. Um, as, as the, and, and also, there's an average of fantasy points. You know, how many how many fantasy points did they score on average? If a guy's made the cut. 15 out of 23 times, and he averages 70 points. That's pretty good. So um, that, 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 that's, a, that's a pretty good pair of barometers. And, and obviously, if that gets better, most guys don't average more than 70, 75 points per, um, per, per tournament. That, that's a pretty high end. So I look for that combination of stuff. And as I've gotten deeper and deeper, like I said, uh, uh, for example, um, I, uh, this week I've got what's his name, Webb Simpson, because they're play, he was my number one pick. He was like eleven thousand bucks, but he's also the, um, the he's playing in his home in his home courts uh, in in North, in, in, South, in North Carolina. He's playing at home, so that that added to my to my uh, liking of him. Um, and again, you know, it's sort of like I, I'm trying to imagine playing fantasy, just starting to play fantasy ball, and you know, to use poor Jay Happ as the example. Uh, you know, if I were just looking at fantasy, just starting to play fantasy ball, I think Jay Happ was probably the best pitcher in the history of anything. So, you know, it's it, I don't have the background and context of how all these guys do, and and that's the hardest part for me in being successful at it. That said, I dropped twenty five dollars into a DraftKings account a year ago, and I'm still playing off that twenty five dollars. So. I have hit it from time to time. Are there any uh, advanced stats in the golf world like there are in baseball that could help you unearth potential sleepers, potential guys who are going to outperform based on something or other? I don't know. I don't think so. And one of the things I think of, too, is, you know, golf is such a strange game. I mean, if you just think of the wind factor and how different the wind is inside a ballpark that's at least somewhat enclosed as opposed to, if you're just playing on a golf course, it just the wind can wreak total havoc with your game, and there's so little control we that that we have on that, and and also you know as I've been writing about golf, one of the, the a couple of the things that 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 get me or, or make it so fascinating are it's the only game where the objective is to not score points, and to a degree it's the only game even though you're playing for the lowest possible score. You're really only playing against yourself. You're, you, you might be wanting to beat everybody else, but it's not like tennis where somebody's hitting the ball back, or, or um, I, I suppose, uh, I suppose uh, racing, automobile racing, is, is sort of like that in the sense that it's just you against the world. But 
But, you know, almost everything else is some kind of competition back and forth as opposed to me against the world. And that makes for an interesting mindset. It's, it's a very strange, difficult, wonderful, bizarre game it is. Does anybody offer fantasy tennis? I'm sure. <laughs> i got to think. Uh, about two or three years ago, I wrote an article on fantasy fashion which was started by a woman who was mad at her husband because he got he became a fantasy football junkie. So she formed a league with a bunch of her friends, and they got together and had, uh, you know, caviar and, and canopies and champagne, and they decided to pick models and magazines and designers, and their season ran from the Emmys to the Oscars. So if you had Demi Moore wearing a Bob Mackie gown on the cover of Elle magazine, you got 50 points. And I, I was totally, there's 10,000 people that play this in our country, believe it or not. And the, my favorite part about all of it was the woman said by the end of her season, she didn't really like football very much. She still hated it, but she kind of understood how her husband got into it. And <laughs> that, that, that's, that's kind of a beautiful thing to me. At least you understand the perspective of the other person trying to figure out how to win this bizarre, abstracted competition. It is. You know, I have a, a, I teach at a local college near where I live, and uh, for the last few semesters I've had the uh, privilege of teaching some uh, kids who came over here from India and Pakistan. And, uh, of course, they're crazy about cricket. And so I asked them, does anybody in your country play fantasy cricket? And they had never heard of the idea. They'd never heard of the concept. And it, it struck me that somebody's missing a fantastic opportunity here because there's like 2 billion people in the world for whom cricket is a more important religion than the one that they actually practice. And apparently nobody's offering them a fantasy cricket application. Laura, I, I think we should get into business. Uh, they're, they're actually, uh, I, I believe there are some European uh, fantasy companies that, that really focus on soccer, too, that actually do do cricket, because I thought about that a few years ago. I don't know how to exploit it, and I don't know, the, I don't know it's kind of like, you know, not knowing the, the player base or how to exploit golf stats. I, I would, it would take me five years to figure out my way around it, but, but you're right. There is an opportunity to make a lot of money, because it's a world market. And say no more. Uh, Laura Michaels, it's been a treat to talk to you again. Uh, I understand you're getting married this weekend, so all the best to, to you and Diane. And uh, have a great ceremony, have a great weekend, have a great marriage, and uh, we'll talk to you again later on this year. Sounds good, man. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. We're getting married on the beach. I think I get to wear no shoes even, so it'll be fun. But uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's always such a pleasure talking with you. Laura Michaels writes for MastersBall.com and plays bass and does vocals for the Biotones. Look for them around the San Francisco Bay Area. We have our commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a great range of information. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has regular daily analysis of news and rosters and ongoing analysis of player performance and skills. This week at the site, in Playing Time Tomorrow coverage, analyst Joseph Pitliski looks at the National League West, including a changing of the guard at shortstop in San Diego and rotation troubles in Los Angeles and Colorado. As part of the celebration of BaseballHQ.com's 20th anniversary, founder Ron Chandler goes back to the very start. 
And in facts and flukes player performance validation, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five players, including Jonathan VR and Jason Hamill. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, minor league scouting and projections, and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Dodgers pitching prospect Jose de Leon is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With their ace Clayton Kershaw still on the 60-day DL, the Los Angeles Dodgers have struggled to find consistency in their starting rotation. Rich Hill, Brandon McCarthy, Hyunjin Ryu, Alex Wood, and Brett Anderson are all also currently less than 100%. One prospect who could help the club down the stretch is right-hander Jose De Leon. The 23-year-old De Leon entered the year as a Dodgers number 3 prospect and has been solid all season for AAA Oklahoma City. De Leon comes after hitters with a good 91-94 to mile an hour fastball that has good late life. He backs up the heater with an average low 80 slider, but his best offering is a plus-plus changeup that allows him to keep hitters off balance and is especially effective versus left-handed batters. DeLeon got a late start to the season due to a severe ankle sprain, but has been very effective since returning to action. On the year, DeLeon is 5-1 with a 3.14 ERA. He has 20 walks and 88 strikeouts and a 212 opposition batting average against in 71 and two-thirds innings in the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League. If DeLeon is called up, it will likely be as a spot starter, but long-term, he has the tools to develop into a solid mid-rotation starter and should be owned in all deep NL-only keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes those ongoing daily call-ups with prospects like 2015 number 1 pick Dansby Swanson being called up to the Braves, Oakland middle infield prospect Chad Pinder, and the tremendously named Milwaukee right-handed pitching prospect Damien Magnifico. Add in all the other scouting reports and tools, and if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those valuable at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the Texas outfield and two DL returnees for the Mets. And here to tell you about it, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Shinsu Chu is officially out for the year in Texas with a wrist injury, leaving a void in left field in Arlington. Jerickson Profar is expected to get the lion's share of playing time there, at least against right-handed pitching, with Ryan Rua and Delano DeShields Jr. splitting time against lefties. Profar has cooled considerably, though, after a hot start. He's hitting just 165 over his last 85 at-bats, with just one homer and a steal. Future struggles from Profar could lead to more playing time for DeShields, who has the wheels to get a nice stolen base boost down the stretch, if he can get on base, though a 70% contact rate with no pop, hence that's a long shot for DeShields. 
A dark horse here could still be Joey Gallo, as Jock Thompson noted in a recent Playing Time Tomorrow column on the site. Gallo still hasn't solved his strikeout issues in AAA, but he's an obvious candidate to get called back up when rosters expand in September. Gallo can play either corner infield slot or slide into left field, and even though his time in the majors has been rough, it's far too early to give up on Joey Gallo. He could provide a nice homer boost down the stretch. To the National League, we go to Queens, where help is on the way as Ioannis Cespedes is expected to be activated Friday, August 19th, and as Drupal Cabrera returned to the team on Thursday. Their returns have had plenty of ripples throughout the Mets lineup. First in the outfield, Cespedes will obviously return to everyday duty along with Jay Bruce, but then there's a gap in center field that the Mets will try to patch with Curtis Granderson and Alejandro de Haza. At 35, Granderson still remains the better fantasy option, though Mets brass has been reluctant to put him in center field on a regular basis. Granderson's power metrics are still in great shape with a 122 expected power index. Remember, league average is always 100. And though he's hitting 224, Granderson's career low hit rate and 250-ish expected batting average suggest he'll start getting a few more hits soon. His playing time's relatively safe, except for some possible defensive replacement time from Deaza. In the infield, as Drupal Cabrera's return will be at shortstop, where he'll likely play every day and move Jose Reyes to third base. Reyes hasn't had the start that Mets fans have hoped for so far, with just a two fifty batting average and three hundred OBP, but his base skills seem fine. He's striking out a bit more as his contact rate has dropped from the high eighties to eighty two percent, but Reyes still has decent speed at thirty three, and he's making more hard, hard contact in a small sample than he ever has. The playing time loser in New York right now is Wilmer Flores. He'll likely slide behind James Loney at first base, presumably just to face lefties. Flores has shown plus power with a 107 expected power index and a 45% fly ball rate this year. And he's played games at first, second, short, and third this year. Flores' 266 expected batting average won't hurt you either, and his flexibility still makes him a fine pickup as he's due to get regular playing time should injuries strike any infield spot in New York. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Dodgers pitcher Jose DeLeon and Oakland shortstop Chad Pinder, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. At this point in the season, a certain level of consistency is absolutely necessary. Every mistake from a pitcher blowing up to a hitting slump becomes magnified, as there are less days to make up for one bad performance or one missed scoring opportunity. In this week's edition of Frequent Flyers will profile two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who may not necessarily dominate in one category, but could contribute across the board in several categories consistently in 2016, beginning with 24-year-old infielder Chad Pinder, who was recently promoted to Oakland. With Jed Lowry set to undergo season-ending surgery, Chad Pinder appears to be on a clear path to playing time at second base. 
After all, Matt Muncy has only bad 211 since his call-up on July 25th. And Chad Pinder was batting 258 with a 76% contact rate at AAA Nashville prior to his call-up. Sure, those numbers aren't exciting, but they are somewhat more predictable. More importantly, Chad Pinder hit 14 home runs in AAA this season. Why is that important? So far in 2016, the Oakland A's have only squeezed four home runs total out of the second base position. To put those numbers in perspective, Yankees catcher Gary Sanchez, who has recently made his Major League debut, has hit more home runs in 13 games than all of the A's second basemen combined in 2016. But as our own Jack Thompson pointed out in the August 16th edition of Plague Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com, it's extremely difficult to project big offensive contributions coming from Chad Pinder. That's why Chad Pinder, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Maybe Chad Pinder won't dominate a specific category, like home runs, but he does have slightly above average speed, and we're projecting him to finish with a two seventy three batting average. While those numbers may not be sexy, Chad Pinder could be a solid contributor for the rest of the season. Speaking of solid contributors, Los Angeles Dodgers 24-year-old pitching prospect Jose DeLeon is making a strong case for joining the Dodgers' rotation. The right-hander has produced a 5-1 record with a 3-14 ERA through 14 starts at AAA Oklahoma City in 2016. However, Jose DeLeon's 3-14 ERA was inflated by one bad outing against the New Orleans Zephyrs on July 25th, where he allowed seven earned runs and failed to get out of the second inning. Minus that bad outing, Jose DeLeon would have a 2.31 adjusted ERA for 2016. Not bad. Plus, Jose DeLeon has produced a dominance rate of 11.1 strikeouts per nine this season, well above our seven strikeouts per nine benchmark for elite pitchers. Do we mention that Jose DeLeon has recorded at least five strikeouts in almost 80% of his 2016 starts? In fact, Jose DeLeon has struck out 10 batters on three separate occasions in 2016, including fanning 10 batters as last start on August 17th against the Albuquerque Isotopes. Jose DeLeon has also demonstrated excellent command of the strike zone in 2016. His command ratio of 4.4 far exceeds BaseballHQ.com's strikeouts to walks benchmark of three or higher. In addition, Jose DeLeon's control rate of 2.5 of the minors ranks among baseball's best. So why haven't the Dodgers called him up? Perhaps the call could be coming sooner rather than later, but the real issue seems to be that the Dodgers would have to add Jose DeLeon to the 40-man roster at a time when the team is currently carrying 48 players due to injuries. Apparently, the Dodgers are still in wait-and-see mode for players such as Clayton Kershaw, Andre Ethier, Alex Wood, and Trace Thompson. But your team shouldn't be in wait-and-see mode when it comes to adding Chad Pinder and Jose DeLeon, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero, with pitchers rated plus one or higher being strong bets to start and those under minus one as strong bets to sit. In between the ones, well, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance. 
with a look at four weekend matchups, including a dandy Sunday American League matchup pitting Minnesota right-hander Irvin Santana in Kansas City to face surprising lefty Danny Duffy. Here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Not to be outdone by the Olympics, we have our own Phelps starting for us this Saturday. It's not the one with more medals than anyone else ever, Michael Phelps, but it's the Miami Marlins' David Phelps. That Phelps opens our weekend matchups lineup with a Saturday start against the Pirates' Cool Chad Cool in Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park. In the American League on Saturday, it'll be the Texas Rangers' A.J. Griffin in Tampa to take on Jake Odorizzi and the Rays at relatively neutral Tropicana Field. Sunday's National League tilt features two fine right-handers as Kenta Maeda of the Los Angeles Dodgers goes against the Reds' Anthony DiSclefani at Cincinnati's hitter-friendly Great American Ballpark. And anchoring our 4x4 relay is the Sunday American League matchup in Kansas City's pitcher-friendly Kauffman Stadium between the Minnesota Twins' Irvin Santana and the Royals' breakout post-hype prospect portsider Danny Duffy. The Marlins are treading water. They are within three games of 500 on the road, over their past 10 and 30 games, and versus teams at or over 500. Their opponents, the Pittsburgh Pirates, have the same number of wins overall, with two fewer losses. The two teams' run differentials are the same at plus one-tenth of a run per game. And while the Fish are two games better against teams at or over 500, the Bucks are seven games better at home than the Marlins are on the road, four games better versus right-handers, and three games better over their past 10 and 20 games. So give Pittsburgh a slight edge, pending our look at the pitchers. David Phelps has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 010. Phelps has acquitted himself well in three games started since returning to the rotation with two PQS 3s and a PQS 2. In 50 relief appearances over the first four months of the season, Phelps's average fastball velocity increased every month, going from 92.6 to 93.7 to 94.1 to 94.4. As a starter, it's still 93.3. That's a vast improvement over his six starts in 2015, where he averaged under 90 miles per hour at 89.9. He's been helped by a strand rate of 93% as a starter, and his first pitch strike rate of 59% is just below what we look for. But his expected ERA is 314, and his base performance value, or BPV, is 134. That adds up to a worthwhile risk. Rookie Chad Cool has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 152. He may have a fun name, but he's only averaging five innings pitched in his six starts, with an expected ERA of 460 and a BPV of only 61. In 31 innings pitched, he's walked nine and struck out 22. His PQS log shows three twos, a four, a one, and a zero. It's best to keep watching him from a distance this Saturday. The Texas Rangers are on a roll. They have the best overall record in the American League and in their past 20 games, plus the second-best records of the American League over their past 10 and 30 games. Against right-handed pitchers, Texas again tops the American League list. The Tampa Bay Rays are 19 games below 500 overall and 6 games below 500 at home, ranking 25th and 26th, respectively. Against right-handers, the Rays are 16 games under 500. And against teams at or above 500, there are woeful 24 games under 500, ranking 29th. But despite being on the better team, Rangers starting pitcher A.J. Griffin has a matchup rating more than one full point lower than his counterpart, Jake Odorizzi of the Rays. Both are in the risk-reward wildcard range, Griffin at minus 089 and Odorizzi at plus 0.16. 
It's a nice feel-good story that after Tommy John surgery in 2014 and shoulder woes in 2015, A.J. Griffin has been healthy enough to make 16 starts in 2016. But those starts themselves? Uh, not so nice. Griffin's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 13% dominant to 50% disaster. His only two PQS dominant outings came back-to-back -back on April 26 and May 2. Since then, he's posted seven PQS disasters in 11 starts. Overall, his expected ERA is 4.69 and his BPV is 58. With a career-high control rate of 3.4 walks per nine innings, a career-low first pitch strike rate of 57%, and a career-low average fastball velocity of 87.6 miles per hour, it's hard to imagine Griffin sticking around long enough for a win in this one. The only reason to use him would be if you're desperate for wins or strikeouts and can afford to compromise your ratios. Otherwise, it's better to keep him away from your active roster. Jake Odorizzi doesn't have the injury history of A.J. Griffin, and the Rays right-hander has superior skills in all areas. Odorizzi's PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 28% dominant to 44% disaster. In 14 games started over the past 10 weeks, he's had three PQS dominant outings and six PQS disasters. But Odorizzi's underlying base performance indicators offer more hope than Griffin's. A dominance rate of 8.3 strikeouts per nine innings and a control rate of 2.6 walks per nine innings give Odorizzi a command ratio of 3.2 strikeouts per walk. His expected ERA is up at 421, but his whip is 121 and his BPV is 94. The Rangers have been raking all season without much help from Fielder or Chu, so they're not likely to slow down without those two now. The task of taming Texas is formidable, but Odorizzi may have a chance to do just that. He's averaging a PQS score of 277 at home, and he's worth the risk unless your strategy now is just to protect your points. Our Sunday National League contest features the division-leading LA Dodgers in Cincinnati to face the only team worse than Tampa versus teams at or above 500, the Cincinnati Reds, who rank 25th overall. The Dodgers score four and a half runs per game and allow only 3.9 for a run differential of six-tenths of a run per game, ranking sixth. The Reds allow a run more per game than they score to rank 29th better than only the Braves. Cincinnati is almost even at home, and LA is just over even on the road. Versus right-handers, the Dodgers are 15 games over 500, and the Reds are 10 games under 500. LA feasts on teams below 500 with a record of 42 and 24. Against teams at or above 500, the Reds are dead last at 23 and 50. The scales are certainly tipped in the Dodgers' favor. Just 10 days ago, BaseballHQ.com's Ryan Bloomfield analyzed the Dodgers' Kenta Maeda in a facts and flukes piece, concluding, quote, With a plus dom, excellent control, and triple-digit BPV, look for Maeda to sustain his excellent pace, unquote. The 28-year-old two-time Sawamura Award winner, which is the Japanese equivalent of our Cy Young Award for Best Pitcher, has put up a BPV of 122 in 137 innings pitched, with 138 strikeouts, only 35 walks, and an expected ERA of 356. He's a must-start, even though he has a risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 0.05. Cincinnati's Anthony DiSclefani will try to buck the odds against his team with his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 0.29. The 26-year-old right-hander spent the first two months of the season on the DL with an oblique strain, but he's come roaring back to pick up where he left off after a fine second half in 2015. His forte has become control. Despite a first-pitch strike rate of only 58%, in 78 innings pitched over 13 games started, he's issued only 18 free passes while striking out 69. 
He's benefited from a strand rate of 79%, which is reflected in his expected ERA of 386 versus his surface ERA of 310. But his BPV of 106 says that although his chances of coming away with a win look slim, he's worth the risk in this one. The Kansas City Royals host the Minnesota Twins in this weekend's Sunday American League finale. The Twins are the second-worst team in Major League Baseball and recently removed their longtime general manager, Terry Ryan, even though the non-waiver trade deadline was looming. Minnesota's run differential ranks 25th. On the road, they're 10 games under 500, and versus teams at or above 500, they're 16 games under 500. The defending World Series champion Kansas City Royals are all even after 120 games with a record of 60 and 60, but their offense is anemic. They are one of only four teams scoring fewer than four runs per game. Still, they have an elite record at home, winning 15 games more than they've lost. And versus teams under 500, the Royals are nine games over 500. Kansas City is clearly the better team, and Minnesota's 33-year-old Irvin Santana will have a tough time against the Royals. During his 12-year career, only once each has Santana had a dominance rate, first pitch strike rate, and swinging strike rate worse than his current levels of 6.7 strikeouts per nine, 58% first pitch strikes, and 8% swinging strikes. Both his expected ERA of 429 and his BPV of 80 are his fourth best ever, and his whip of 121 is his third best. All that implies he's doing more with less, and his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 035 indicates that's probably not enough to result in any sort of celebration against Kansas City. Use Irvin Santana only if you desperately need to. Danny Duffy debuted for the Royals in 2011 at age 22. Since then, he's been injured, moved to the bullpen, and now returned to the rotation. And what a return. Since re-entering the Royals' rotation, Duffy's PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 50% dominant to 6% disaster. In 18 games started, that's 9 PQS dominant outings and only 1 PQS disaster. In 132 innings, he has a command ratio of 5.3 strikeouts per walk on 143 strikeouts and 27 walks. Duffy has a control rate of 1.8 walks per nine and a dominance rate of 9.8 strikeouts per nine. He has a first pitch strike rate of 62% and a swinging strike rate of 14%. Duffy's average fastball velocity is 95 miles per hour. His expected ERA is 347. His whip is below 1 at 098, and his base performance value is 138. Congratulations if you acquired Danny Duffy on the cheap. He's earned his owners $23 in roto value this season. If you own him, start him. After this weekend, the Major League Baseball regular season heads into its final lap of 40 games. Most fantasy leagues have their own trade deadlines coming up in the next 10 days, too. So now's the time for your Olympic kick. Whether you're going for the gold or as close to it as you can get this season, or loading up for next year, this weekend you can use Kenta Maeda, Anthony DeSclafani, and Danny Duffy. Avoid Chad Cool, A.J. Griffin, and Irvin Santana. And depending upon your circumstances, you may want or need to take a chance on David Phelps or Jake Odorizzi. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about the beginning of the end for saves as a fantasy stat, or I hope so. Terry Francona has fired what might be the first shots that eventually sink the save as a fantasy stat. And I say to Captain Francona, full speed ahead, sir. 
I've fulminated in this space before about what a poor stat the win is. And if anything, the save is even worse. More capricious, more lucky, more inconsistent, and even less valuable than wins to a team's success. A win, for all its numerous warts, requires that a pitcher at least stay in the game through 15 outs, or luck into one as a vulture. A save requires the pitcher to get as few as one out, or to get three outs, often against the weakest part of the opponent's order, with a three-run lead. A few years ago, I asked my then-HQ colleague Matt Beagle, a die-hard Stratomatic player, about the secret to his success. He told me, I never draft a closer, I just get the best relievers. At that time in Stratomatic, you see, you could simply assign any of your relief pitchers to the closer role, so any quality relief arm would do. More recently, I think the rules were adjusted to give real closers better cards for the game, but if I remember what Matt said at the time, the Strat owner could also use his best reliever, even if he was a closer in the big leagues, in more useful situations. Which, of course, means not always in the ninth inning. That's what Terry Francona has done so far with Andrew Miller. Joe Sheehan wrote in his excellent baseball newsletter that one of his readers had tipped him to Miller's usage pattern since he came to Cleveland at the trade deadline. Instead of locking into the mythology about the closer and the ninth inning, Francona has used his formidable left-hander to get key outs in more critical situations, as early as the sixth inning, and has left him in the game for more than three outs on occasion. Here's what went down after Miller got his feet wet in a blowout loss to Minnesota. On August 4th, with Cleveland leading 4-2 in the top of the sixth, Miller came in with two out to face Byron Buxton and struck him out looking. Francona left him in for the seventh to face the top of the Twins' order, right-handed hitter Brian Dozier and then lefties Joe Maurer and Max Kepler. Ground out, strike out, strike out, inning over. Cleveland scored three in the bottom of the seventh and coasted to an easy win. On August 6th, leading the Yankees 5-2 in New York, Francona brought Miller in for the save situation in the ninth, again facing the top of the order. After a Brett Gardner single, Miller fanned lefty Jacoby Ellsbury and switched striker-outer Mark Teixeira, then got lefty Brian McCann on a ground out. Cleveland won. August 9th, with Cleveland ahead 2-0 in Washington, Miller came in in the seventh inning with a runner on second and one away. He popped up pinch hitter Brian Goodwin, fanned leadoff man Trey Turner, and stranded the runner. He stayed in for the eighth again with Francona managing past right-handed hitter Jason Wirth towards the left-hander Daniel Murphy. Wirth threw a monkey wrench into the plan by homering, but Miller got Murphy to fly out. Francona brought in right-hander Brian Shaw to mow down some right-handed hitters, Cleveland won. August 13th, after three days off, Miller was brought in in the top of the eighth. With Cleveland ahead 5-1, to one, he struck out the side with a walk. Cody Allen got the save. Cleveland won. August 14th, with Cleveland leading the Angels 5-4 after 6, Miller came in for the top of the 7th to face the bottom of the order. But in a planned move, Francona also left him in to face the top of the order in the 8th. Three total groundouts, one lineout, a fly ball, and a strikeout of Albert Pujols, and Miller's work was done for the evening. Cleveland won. Okay, it's only the Angels, but still... August 16th, with Cleveland leading the White Sox 2-1 after 6, again Miller comes in in the 7th to face the bottom of the order, and again stays in to face the top of the order in the 8th. Five groundouts and one whiff later, Miller left the game, and Cleveland won. 
One of the arguments against flexible use of relievers is that pitchers like to know their roles, which has always been interpreted to mean which inning they pitch. Miller, remember, thought he was going to be pitching the ninth in New York with the departure of Aroldis Chapman, but after Cleveland acquired him, Francona and general manager Chris Antonetti met with Miller and with incumbent closer Cody Allen to assess their mindsets about the new bullpen arrangements. Miller appears not to be pouting with his demotion, nor with being pushed into games on relatively short notice, another supposed bugaboo about using relievers flexibly. In his six games, Miller accumulated one save, five holds, and pitched exceptionally well. His ERA in the games barely over one, his whip well under 0.5. His dom, 12 strikeouts per nine, his control, 1.1 walks per nine, and his command, an astonishing 11 strikeouts per walk. According to media reports, both Allen and Miller said they would willingly take different roles, namely the role of doing what is best to help the team win games. Miller is living that commitment. That still leaves Francona to do likewise. After the deal, he had told reporters, quote, We have guys at the end of the game that are a little bit interchangeable, not only in their willingness, but different kinds of skill set, different arm actions, left, right, and we're going to have a chance to leverage guys, and believe me, we will. So far, seeing is believing. Francona has been willing to use Miller flexibly, but it will be more interesting to see if he's willing to follow Miller in the sixth, with Allen in the seventh, and maybe leave Shaw or some other bullpen arm to take the easy ninth inning mop-up save. If he does, and more importantly, if he succeeds, the rest of baseball is bound to take notice. Wasn't that long ago that the Royals inspired a bunch of imitators with their fixed World Series late-game bullpen lineup. Not least, the Yankees acquired Chapman and Miller to serve that purpose with Dellen Batances. If Francona were to inspire new roles and new management of relievers, it would be nothing but good for fantasy baseball. At best, norms would change and the saves category would be replaced with some other more comprehensive measure of reliever effectiveness. Even saves plus holds would be an improvement. A second best outcome would be the de-emphasis of the closer as a repository of value. Flexible bullpens would mean a wider distribution of saves, reducing the value of that one-guy endgamer and adding value to the other skilled guys in every bullpen in the league. Of course, all of this stinks for current Andrew Miller owners, who are expecting a bumper crop of late-season saves and will instead get holds, good decimals, and the thin satisfaction of possibly owning a guy on the cutting edge of baseball strategy. As for me, hey, I can hardly wait. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 40 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show, the Fantasy Baseball Zen Master, Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. Lore is an original thinker and just great fun to hang with here on the podcast, at a draft, or at First Pitch Arizona. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business for 20 years. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. 
Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky, and our pitcher matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I'll have a facts and fluke spotlight next week, taking a deep dive into Cleveland third baseman Jose Ramirez. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ, and you can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in one week when our Friday feature guest expert will be Rob Arthur, the baseball writer at 538.com. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.